I guess it would be appropriate, um, since we've just shared how grateful we, we are for God's grace in our life in these areas, I want to share um, one area that um, I'm really acutely grateful for and aware of, uh, and that is uh, Valley Bible Study. Um, <laughs> It is my favorite um, time in ministry at Crossroads is right now because of the blessing of that group in the lives of uh, each one of us uh, in our family. So we're, we're thankful to God for you guys. It was September 2nd, 1945. Japan had officially signed the Declaration of Surrender, effectively ending World War II. Of it, Commanding Officer Douglas MacArthur said this, It is my earnest hope, and indeed the the hope of all mankind, that from this solemn occasion a better world shall emerge out of the blood and carnage of the past. The surrender that Japan had signed changed the daily lives of all mankind. The most devastating war in world history had ended. And life was different for everyone. Well, almost everyone. One Japanese soldier didn't get the memo. Hiro Onoda, a Japanese special forces officer, was deployed on an island off the coast of the Philippines. Onoda was highly trained in the skills of sabotage, of counterintelligence, and guerrilla warfare. Perhaps too well. Because Onoda continued fighting for the next 30 years after the war had ended. Anytime anyone would come to give him news on the island, Onoda would attack and or kill those who approached. In 1974, after finally receiving news of Japan's defeat, Onoda refused to surrender still until he said that his commanding officer would deliver the news himself and command him to surrender. At this time, though, 30 years had passed. So Onoda's commanding officer was now retired from military service. And he was now working in a shoe store. But the government of Japan sent him to Onoda, and he was able to give him the order, and Onoda surrendered, and he came home to an entirely different world, what was once a world, uh, a land of ancient wooded houses, had now been replaced by skyscrapers, high-rises, high-speed trains, and technology that Onoda had never known. It was information that Onoda received that changed his life forever. And then Onada surrendered. A lot of Christians 
live like Onadah. We've heard the good news, and we're often even experts at the good news. But we will sometimes still live our lives in a pattern like we haven't surrendered. Romans chapters 12 and 13 are a manual for surrender in the Christian life. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And appropriately, the manual of Romans, and particularly the manual of surrender in chapters 12 and 13, it opens with a reminder about that news, about that information, about a war ending, that the world is now a different place as a result of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in the gospel. Now, before you think that you're off the island and that this message would be for those other Christians who haven't fully surrendered their lives yet, I think that you might find that there are ways in which you have an Onada-type mindset lingering within you spiritually. Romans 12 through 13, both chapters, which we are going to both cover, we're covering both chapters today, kind of in a macro exposition is a turning point in the letter of Romans. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you obviously know that the, that the first half of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 11, is predominantly the theology of the letter. But it's easy to think that Paul's done with the important part, that, that the bulk of his argument is done. And the reality is it's the opposite. At least for his purposes, he isn't done with his most important argument that's yet to come in chapters 14 and 15. Chapters 1 through 11, as I said, is primarily the theology. It's the facts. It's the news about a war ending. And chapters 12 through 16 is about how to live life in light of that reality. Now, It's important, especially in well-taught churches, and I would say that we have the blessing of of hearing amazing sermons every week, multiple sermons every week, um, that are deep theologically, that are true to the text. But it's, it's important to guard from the air of reading the theology and then just jumping over the application. To think that the theology of what Scripture says within Scripture, you've done it, and then, yeah, the, the rest is the yada, yada, yada. I get it. I could do the rest. Or worse, God will do it, and I just sit back, relax, and let go and let God. But theology is the fuel for right living. And if there's all fuel and no living, then that's a problem. To quote Hannah Moore, who is a reformer and a poet from church history, who was friends with William Wilberforce and John Newton, she says this, The constant habit of perusing devout books, theological books, is so indispensable, essential, is what she's saying, that it has been termed the oil of the life 
of application, the life of living, the life of obeying, the life of prayer. Too much reading, however, she says, and too little meditation may produce the effect of a lamp. So you have oil at the bottom and you have a wick and the light, you have the flame. A lamp inverted, flipped upside down, which is extinguished by the very excess of that, ail- of that ailment whose property is to feed it. The oil is essential for the flame, but all theology and no application is the oil dousing the flame. This, morning, this morning's message is entitled, How to Surrender. How to Surrender. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to give you a few guidelines about how to read the text. So we'll call it the goggles for, about, for what we're about to jump into in Romans 12 and 13. First, Romans is, and this is obvious, every epistle is this, it's personal correspondence. It was a letter. It was a letter written to a divided church. There was a lot of tension in the church at Rome. There were two sides of this tension. It was Jews and there was Gentiles. And they were struggling with knowing how to live life together as a church. A church that Paul had not planted. A church that Paul had not been to. And he had not met them in person. But, interestingly enough, he wanted Rome to be his new home church. He wanted to transfer his membership to the church at Rome. And so therefore, since this was going to be his new church home, he wanted them to be united. He needed them to be united, and he needed to give them this manual for how to be united. In reality, it's, verse, it's chapters 12 and 13 that sets up the crescendo for chapters 14 and 15, when he gives specific instructions in chapters 14 and 15 on how to live life in unity, specifically to the problems that are happening in Corinth. Sorry, Rome. These four chapters are the main reason Paul is writing. It's the main reason he's writing these letters, this letter. That's the first thing. It's personal correspondence. The second goggle or the second lens by which to read this is that chapters 12 and 13 are a giant sandwich that Bible nerds like to call a chiasm. And we have in a chiasm or a sandwich, we have the bread on the outside, the top and the bottom. And then we have the toppings, you know, like, um, you know, what are your favorite sandwich toppings or burger toppings? You could call it out. Bacon, it's good. Pastrami? Pastrami is the middle. Did somebody say pastrami? That's the middle. So that's the meat. We're not there yet. The toppings. Oregano? It's good. Lettuce is great. Egg is great. Oh, yeah, egg. Egg on a burger is weird, but, but good. But good. Grilled onions. I usually say no onions, but grilled onions better than raw onions. Uh, so, yeah, those are the fun things, I think. It's like, you know, it's how you customize a sandwich. So that's the second part of a chiasm. So you have the bread is point one. Chiasm, uh, sorry, it, the second in the chiasm, the, the, the second point is the toppings. And then we get to the pastrami mat. So the pastrami is the meat in the middle. The point of a chiasm, 
the point of a biblical sandwich, it's a poetic way of emphasizing what's being taught. Uh, A similar thing in Scripture is a parallelism. Uh, That's a short version of a poetic way of repeating or emphasizing what's being taught. Uh, An example of a parallelism is Psalm Psalm 18.4, which says, The cords of death entangled me, the cords of the grave coiled around me. It's, it's a poetical way of emphasizing the same thing by repeating it. In the same way, uh, chiasm is a bigger version of that, usually in three. So you have the outside, inside, middle. Or out, outside, a little bit more inside, middle. And Romans chapter 12 and 13 is a giant version of that. Number three, notice that the surrender that's being talked about in this passage is all community-based. Meaning, it's impossible to be obeyed by yourself. Sanctification, that's being talked about specifically in this section, can't be done in isolation. Sanctification is a community project. Okay, we got the goggles up the way, now let's jump into the text. We won't go in order, we will go in order a little bit, because you have the first part of the sandwich, the first topping, and, you know, the the meat. But what we'll do this, we'll go from outside to inside. So point one is the transformation of surrender. The transformation of surrender, which is selflessness. That's the bread of the sandwich. This can be found in chapters 12, the first verses, 1 through 8, and the very end of chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. In these sections, Paul's urges... Christians to live life in light of their rescue, in light of chapters 1 through 11, which talks about the redemption that we have in Jesus. In light of the war being over, they must live like it. You'll see that this is in both of those sections, both sides of the bread. Okay, You'll see these three things, and this is my way of trying to prove to you that this is a chiasm, that the bread matches, that the top of the bun matches the bottom of the bun. You'll see these three themes. You'll see the need to change. You'll see living between two worlds, and you'll see letting go of self. The need to change, the living between two worlds, and the letting go of self. That's what you'll see in the bread. And he opens the verses with two of the most famous verses in the Bible. These verses are often surgically removed from this section, and we put them on a a little trophy case in our our minds and hearts. Um, But we need to see that these verses are the summary of the rest of the book of Romans. Let's read 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. He's talking like our commanding officer here. By the mercies of God, this is the redemption as seen in chapters 1 through 11, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, letting go of self, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's our worship here in response to redemption? It's selflessness, letting go of self. It's a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, by the way, the world, world here, this word world, more specifically translates better to age or era. So it's not just like 
living in this earth or living in the culture. It's living in an old way, pre-redemptive way. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This there is the need for change. Now let's look to the bottom. Go to the bottom, the last part of chapter 13, 13 verses 11 through 14. Starting at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, real quick, this is not talking about justification. Salvation isn't something that has to be worked out to have to be justified before God for him to love you. This is talking about the future of glorification, the future eschaton. It's the restoration of all things when Jesus comes back fully to reign. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Okay, there it is, two worlds. You have the old world of night. The, the night is ending and you have something to come. The day is at hand, it's about to begin. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is the need for change. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is letting go of self. One of the mysteries to the people of Israel was the fact that the resurrection and the restoration of their loved ones and the death of death and disease and the cure and the reversal of curse didn't happen when Messiah came. The fact that he came, he resurrected, and he left, that was a mystery. When God came, as he promised he would come, they expected this new age, this new world to break in and for them to live forever, for the entire world to be resurrected, for their loved ones to come back. The mystery is that Messiah was resurrected and restored, and, and that, in a way, he, he is on the throne. He, is, he did conquer death. He did conquer sin. But there's a not yet. He isn't finished with his work on earth. The world is still waiting for redemption. Romans 8. Creation is longing for the redemption. And we wait. And we wait between night and day. But while waiting for dawn, we put on armor of light. We live like it is day. What does this look like according to this passage? What does it mean to put armor of light? What does it mean to live between two worlds and live like it's tomorrow? It's self-sacrifice. It's denying our selfish pleasures. We put on Jesus the one who didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life away. It's easy, as I said, to take Romans 12, 1 and 2 out of context and to think of nonconformity to the world as sort of a means by not having worldly friends, not knowing unbelievers, and that transformation of the renewing of our minds is some sort of way of like just focusing on theology and just meditating solely on doctrine and dwelling 
at, sometimes it's even more subtle by just meditating on what God has done for me. It's sort of a theological navel-gazing, a way that we just let go and let God, a way for God to do the work while we just meditate on the truth of theology. But look at the context. What is the transformation of mind renewal? All you have to do is look at the next verses. Verse 3 of chapter 12, let's go back to the front part of the, of the sandwich. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to, what's the word? Say it louder. Think, mind renewal. Think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So mind renewal is a change in thinking, no longer thinking highly of yourself, but to, next word, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Isn't that interesting? Talk about the remedy for selflessness. You didn't bring the faith. For as, this is verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Verse 6, having gifts that differ. That's interdependence right there. Serving each other, losing yourself and serving each other. According to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The transformation of surrender is selflessness, thinking less of self, denying selfish desires, and serving each other in an, in an interdependent way in the body. Crossroads, be transformed by giving your life away. Point two. Point two, the task of surrender. The task of surrender, which is love. Love. What does giving your life away look like? What does it mean to surrender? What does it mean to be selfless? Let's look at the next section in 12, verses 9 through 13, and then we'll jump to the other part of the toppings, um, 13, 8 through 10. Let's start in verse 9 of of chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. That's four words right there we just read. Let love be genuine. In Greek, it's two words. Love, unhypocritical. There's not even a verb. It's just like stating a fact. Love, unhypocritical. Okay, what what do you want me to do there? And, And the rest will tell you. It's like the heading of the next section. Abhor what is evil. That word evil sounds generic, but in reality, the word means it's an oppressive or adding toil onto someone else type of evil. It's not a general evil, but a taking advantage of type of evil. Hold fast to what is good. This is also a relational word. It means generous, a generous type of love or a generous type of good. 
doing good for someone else. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. So this is not just an action. This is a heart command. This is a need for an internal heart motivation. It's what thrills you. Serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Real quick, New Testament hospitality, when it talked about hospitality in that time, by definition, it was a ministry to strangers. Oftentimes, it's easy to be hospitable to people that we already love or enjoy, but how difficult it is, it is to take time out and to serve those that we don't know yet. Now, let's look at the toppings on the other side. So if we had the grilled onions that we just covered in verse 9 of chapter 12, we're going to look below at, uh, say, the lettuce. Uh, 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except love for each other. There it is again. For For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So the gospel is Christ fulfilling the law on your behalf. Christ loved. He loved the Father. He loved others with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength so that you would then be enabled to love and live the law. And here's what sums it up. Verse 9, For the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Crossroads, the life lived in light of being loved in the gospel is to love. What you receive in the gospel of love, it it is begging you to then give love. Which is so helpful for understanding the meat of this section. Let's look at point three, the test of surrender. The test of surrender. And that is enemies and authority. This is the, the, the meat of the sandwich. This is the pastrami. How do you know if you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Selflessness. We saw that in the first section. How do you know if you're truly selfish? Sel- selfless? It's if you're loving others. But then how do you know if you truly love? And I think Paul is showing us that the test is when you love the most difficult. Enemies and authority. Let's look at the meat. 12, 14 through 13, 8. Let's start in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice those with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Notice the context. You're weeping and you're rejoicing with whom? Those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of 
all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Okay, let me stop there real quick. Feeding him, it doesn't mean like literally like go cook a meal. Okay, I need to get, you know, the ingredients out, you know, home cooked meal here. It could mean that, but I think it's more broadly meaning you are sharing a meal with someone. You're, and, and that necessitates spending time with that person. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Now, this has always been perplexing. So I looked at the commentaries, and I was looking, and I saw multiple times, and I saw this really helpful insight about an ancient idiom about burning coals on one's head. It's a parallel to someone's face going red from embarrassment. Paul is saying, put the ball in their court, perhaps their shame and embarrassment will lead them to repentance. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's so easy to respond to evil with evil. Sanctification, I think, so often is like um, or I'll, I'll say this, responding to sin is like, you know those, those bouncy balls, those super balls you get from when you put a quarter in the machine in the market, and you, know, you, they're real, you bounce them and they go real high. But like, sometimes if you're like in a narrow hallway, you could kind of like throw it against the wall and they go back and forth. I think that sin is like that. Sin is when you get sinned against, you often respond to sin with sin. It's our, it's our sinful disposition to act that way. And I think sanctification is the ability to absorb the ball. Let's continue um, with chapter 13, the test of authority. The test of authority. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay, you, of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, 
attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably thinking, we got a documentary coming out. The Essential Church. And we're raising money for it. And you're thinking, what about COVID? And obviously, there are times and other passages of Scripture that talk about the purpose of government and the outline, the place, and the purpose of it. Even showcasing in Scripture times where God's people were to speak and called to speak authoritatively to the government. And that is all legitimate. But in the same way that Paul in Ephesians didn't qualify and give exception to wives submitting to husbands, Paul isn't stating those obvious exceptions. Though those exceptions do exist, we shouldn't wait in eager expectation for governments to step out of line so that we get a chance to disobey them. If our hearts are seeking for the ill will and anticipating the evil of authority, then we are not submitting to this passage. And thus, we are not willing to surrender. I love how our Pastor John says, the world is not our enemy. The world is our mission field. And we love our mission field. And we love our enemies. And one more thing. Need I mention who was the power and who was the king and who was the Caesar at this time when Paul is writing the letter to the Romans? Nero. Nero was in power. The one who would hunt Christians and would dip them in oil and use them as torches for his outdoor cocktail parties. Our brothers and sisters, the test of surrender. Are you letting go of rights? And for the sake of surrendering and giving your life away, Just submitting. Your heart disposition should bend this way and bend away from self. Though we close with the meat in the middle of the sandwich, let's close with where Paul closed at the bottom of the bun. Let's look again to the bottom of the bread one more time. You are living in between day and night, remember, It's between two worlds. It's easy to point out the darkness in our culture, but be so unaware of the the darkness in our own hearts. We are still wrestling with the flesh, and we're still wrestling with our selfish impulses. But the dross of our hearts and the darkness of our hearts, it rises to the surface when we're faced with trials 
especially enemies and authority in the pressure cooker of life. But Paul closes in verse 14 of chapter 13 with these words. Put on the Lord, the Master, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus, what did our Master do when he faced the authorities of his day? When they put him on trial and falsely accused him and they punched him in the face and they spat in it. What did he do? How did he respond? He didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He did say, Father, forgive them. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life away. Why would it be any different for the master's servants? Because of the selflessness and love of Jesus, he went to death and he beat sin and he beat death and the war is over and the king is on his throne. He is the king of the universe. Will you live in light of that reality? Surrender. Let's bow. Father, it is uh, very easy to hold so tightly on to the things in life, the graces even in life, the gifts that you've given us. But Lord, I pray that you would open our hands, cause us to let go of those weights and encumbrances that we cling so tightly to. I pray that you would cause us to let go of our rights for the sake of surrender. That is responding to the reality of what you have done in the gospel. I pray that theology, that essential component of the Christian life, would be the fuel for that surrender. Especially in this time of thanksgiving, I pray that we'd be mindful of what we have from you in the gospel. And that our response of thanks would not just be in word, but it would be in deed. It would be a life of thanks seen in selflessness and love and submission. Make that true of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.